1: Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte. No subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. I know you're using that Google ecosystem. Get that multi-device integration, you guys. And for a limited time, you can get 10 bucks off your first one by visiting g.co/slash play slash longform. That's g.co. Slash play slash long form. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Also, sponsoring the show today, Stitcher Premium. If you have not joined Stitcher Premium yet, now is the time. There's two reasons to join. One is they've got ad free episodes of hundreds of your favorite shows, including Comedy Bang Bang and WTF with Mark Marin. There's also tons of exclusive content. I am uh, seeing here that they have 21,000 hours which seems like a ton but a lot of this exclusive content is fantastic and uh as the name implies you can't get it anywhere else. Go try Stitcher Premium. You can do it for free for a month with the promo code longform. Go to stitcherpremium.com. Again, the promo code is longform and you can try it out for a month. Here's our show. Hello! Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm sitting here with just one co-host, Evan Ratliff. How are you, man?
2: I'm good, Max. Thanks for coming to my living room to record this. (laughs) I've gotten so lazy that now I insist that the studio come to me. We should acknowledge that there is a third
1: co-host who's not Aaron. Aaron's on vacation. But Henry, Evan's incredible cat, is here with us. Uh, And this week on the show, also with us, Brian Fogel, director of the uh, documentary Icarus.
2: I am very excited about this. I'll tell you, Max, that when I saw this documentary, it had already won the Oscar for Best Documentary. I was not really aware of that or anything about it. And for people who haven't seen it, you should stop this right now and go see it because I feel like it's an incredible experience. If you don't know anything about what's going to happen, there's a insane twist in this story. But for those who are gonna listen to the podcast right now, we should probably set it up a little. Yeah, bit. we
1: should just give them the twist. So uh, Brian is a like very serious amateur cyclist and his idea for the movie is, uh, was in the wake of all the like Lance Armstrong uh, doping revelations. He decided that he was gonna dope and see what effect it had on, on his performance. And so he like went looking for a coach, someone who could like guide him in the most like cutting edge doping technology there was. And uh, he found this guy who was running the anti-doping agency in Moscow. And uh, the first like half an hour, 40 minutes of the movie are the two of them kind of like having this kind of like funny, friendly relationship about doping and it's all kind of above board. And then uh, it turns out that this guy Uh, has been, is like the mastermind of the massive Russian doping scandal that was uncovered and uh, ended up with like Russia being banned from the last Olympics, all this stuff. And uh, Brian ends up being this guy's lifeline and he flees Russia. He's like uh, under very serious threat from Vladimir Putin. He's now currently in uh, like whatever the equivalent of witness protection is.
2: It's crazy. Yeah. It's a fucking crazy story. When you're watching it happen, it's, you think this can't possibly be real.
1: Yeah. And, and it's one of these things where, um, and Brian and I talked about it in the interview, like he set out to do one thing and then it turned and you can kind of see the moment in the film where he realizes like, Oh, my first idea is not the idea anymore. Like I got to just do this. And, uh, it was great. It was really fun to talk to him about it. It's a wild, Holy shit story.
2: There's one more thing we should mention about this particular episode.
1: Uh, We should. It is also an episode or it is originally an episode of another podcast called You Can't Make This Up, which is a uh, podcast that's being produced by Netflix. The conceit of that show is that different podcasters, every episode interview filmmakers of Netflix documentaries Listeners to long form may be uh, familiar with You Can't Make This Up because they have advertised on our program a few times. And uh, I would just like to make clear that they are not paying for us to put this through the feed or anything. I had a really good time talking to Brian. It felt like a long form episode. And so we're sharing it here.
2: Max, how many podcasts are you involved with?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Plead the fifth, man. Plead the fifth. But one of them that uh, you should check out is this one. You can't make this
2: up. You know what else you can't make up, Max? Tell me, man. Tell me. (laughs) A great book festival without a great sponsor.
1: (laughs) Hell of a segue, man. Uh, I'll tell you what. My favorite book festival in America is the Decatur Book Festival. Far and away. Unparalleled. You and I were there last year. We brought uh, a whole bunch of authors, our favorite authors, authors uh to the Decatur book festival over labor day as part of the read this summer program which is sponsored by mailchimp they're running it back we were like we'll do it they were like we're good (laughs) (laughs) so shay serrano of the ringer is uh curated a whole a fantastic lineup you know shay
2: serrano is gonna have good picks yeah. Probably better picks than us. I That's mean, not true. I shouldn't disparage our picks. Our picks were incredible. No,
1: he will just be a better time. Everyone will have a better time because it's Shay. That's true. Uh, but if you were looking for something to read this summer, go to readthissummer.com. Check out one of these books that Shay has picked out. There's all kinds of fantastic stuff. And now here's
2: Max with Brian Fogel.
3: Well, hey Brian. Hey Max, how are you? I'm well. I'm, I'm well. doing. I'm doing good. They're all uh, set up here in my house, and uh, and I have a dog, Max, who's right by my side. So it was a uh, good Max environment.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I like I like the Max vibes to be good. Well, I uh, like everyone else in the world and the academy was uh, just blown away by your film. Congratulations on the award. How how is it? Uh, how does winning an Oscar change your life?
3: Um, well, first of all, uh, thanks. It was uh, an incredibly humbling experience, and um, you know, it was a, a tremendous amount of support around the project, and you know, just a, an amazing uh, team of of people that came together to to help the film get the recognition that ultimately uh, uh, happened with the Academy. So that was just awesome, and. Um, you know, I guess how, how it feels different is, um, I'm not quite sure. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's, you know, it's like I have this Oscar in my house and so I walk by it every day, there it is. And, so every, every and, morning uh, I wake up, I go over, I kiss it. Well, um, <laughs> no, that was just the first couple weeks. First, first couple weeks of having it, I just wouldn't let it leave my sight. So I'd bring it to the bed with me, I'd put it in the kitchen, I'd put it in the trunk of my car, but, um. But uh, yeah, uh, but ultimately uh, it's uh, I think it's only um, a wonderful tool to be able to continue to, to do work and to be able to continue to, to do projects that that inspire you. So um, uh, for me I think um, winning uh, the Oscar has just opened up doors for me to continue to, uh, to do work.
1: This is probably like a, a corny question and I, I chalk it up to me watching too many like sappy movies or something but when you're like standing up there is there any part of you that thinks back to like the original genesis of the film and when you first had that idea and like whatever you needed to do to take it out and get funding and pitch it around like to think about how wildly it changed and that you're up on there like are are you going through that process at all or is it just kind of like a holy shit moment
3: um, I, I think, I think I has been going through that process throughout the entire process. Um, I, I think, um, for me, the most, uh, surreal thing about it was, uh, when I, when I started on making Icarus, um, you know, a little over four years ago, I was probably going through, uh, one of the hardest, um, creative and financial periods of my life. And, um, really trying to figure out if I was going to be able to continue to uh, be a filmmaker um, and be able to get funding for projects. And so um, to have that experience four years later to, to be on the stage winning an Oscar when I started the film coming from a very different um, kind of emotional and uh, financial state in my life and creative space... Um, that was, uh, that was pretty amazing. Um, and so I've always, uh, I've thought about that throughout this entire experience. And, uh, was
1: it, um, sorry, I, I, I guess I didn't totally know that. Was it close? I mean, were you really close to not, not making films anymore?
3: Yeah. You know, I'd, I had, uh, I, I did a play that was, uh, uh, very successful that played in New York for three and a half years and los angeles and all over the country and then i did a book and then i had um directed what was my first feature film a, a comedy which was an adaptation of of the play and and uh long story short the film uh, just it, 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 I, I took bad money into the film um um the financier didn't want to sell it there was just all these you know stories that, that you hear and and it didn't uh Open up doors in my career as i had hoped it to, and uh, and I spent essentially a couple of years after that process trying to figure out how I was going to restart. And um, and cycling for me is, had always been kind of my therapy in life, and even though I think in, in Icarus it kind of shows, oh, I was racing bikes. I mean, the reality was is that I would stopped racing bikes when I was twenty years old, and I had gotten very back into cycling, um, kind of as a, as a therapeutic kind of way as I was figuring out how I was going to, um, write the next chapter in my life. And then, you know, Armstrong confessed and I started getting this idea in my mind that, Hey, uh, we've never seen kind of a, a super size me esque journey in, in the world of performance enhancing drugs, which, you know, obviously, uh, is, got a, a, a universal uh, worldwide curiosity to it. And also I, I was looking at what I viewed was uh, totally ineffective uh, anti-doping system on a worldwide basis because despite the government and WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, parading that that they had essentially, you know, caught the bad guy, they really hadn't caught him at all. It was... Uh, it was a confession based on all of his teammates ratting him out uh, in exchange for their own immunity. So I was going, wait, um, <laughs> not what's wrong with Lance Armstrong. Uh, what's wrong with this global anti-doping system that can't catch a guy after testing him 500 times? And, uh, and to me, that, that felt like that was going to be um, an interesting story and, and hopefully would make for a compelling film.
1: And how long were you working... On that version of the film uh, before like your your story turned?
3: Well, I was working on um, on that version of the film. There was about a year uh, for me of um, essentially coming up with the idea and then figuring out how I was going to get you know a first round of money to kind of just start in on on the process of, of filming. and so it took me about a year. Uh, to get the first tranche of financing to kind of start on that journey. And that really started in um, April 2014. And I had already talked to Gregory uh, Rechenkov months before I would actually started shooting. So there was kind of a, the initial seeds of it. Um, but I didn't know where that was going to you know, lead to or whether or not it would bear fruit. Um until you know november of 2015 so you know so here may june july august september you know a year and a half into making the first film um you know is when essentially i realized that the first film that i was making uh, was going to be completely inconsequential to what um to what the film would ultimately become and
1: uh that that moment is one i really want to dig into for a second because I'm interested in a, in a whole slew of things. And one is, um, is there any part of you that wonders what this sort of first version, um, in its entirety, would have looked like? How that would have played as a doc? Is, like, do you do you do you think about that at all? Is, like, when you when you switch gears in the way that you had to, like, uh, do you do you mourn the lost narrative somehow?
3: Um, no, I don't mourn the lost narrative. And there was, um, so many moments during that really first year, um, where I had this kind of like, you know, what, what the hell am I doing? Um, <laughs> were any and, of those moments
1: while you were like, uh, you know, sticking testosterone in your ass? Yeah,
3: it was just, it was, it was, it was one after the other. And then, you know, and you know, I had, uh, Gregory involved, you know, very, very early on in the process. Even before I had started doping. But to me, in the, in the early stages, um, the, the film that I was making and the success of the film hinged on my ability to essentially dope and evade uh, detection. And that, you know, Gregory, of course, was the co conspirator, you know, sideman in the project. But ultimately, whether or not the film was going to work hinged on, on that premise for me. And so, you know, after I completed the, the second uh, Hope Route in 2015 and didn't perform as well as I had hoped, there was um, kind of a, a huge burden and what was feeling like an elephant that, that I wasn't quite sure um, if I was going to be able to pull off the film as, as I had hoped for. And, and at the same time, I had already been interviewing all the guys that had been uh, investigating Gregory and had been investigating, um, you know, the uh, Russian, you know, state-sponsored doping system. So, right. so I'd been planting that. I had been planting that that foot, and I had been doing that, you know, really through the entire process that I was that I was doping. But I didn't know what, where that was going to go to at that point. You know, what the investigation was going to find, you know, and whether or not that potential storyline was going to pay off. So, I mean, there was just so many times that, um, I just, um, you know, I had, I had self doubt, but, but, you know, I, I kept going. I was, um, you know, I was, I was on this journey and I wasn't going to stop.
1: Help help me just understand that last thing a, a little bit more, if you can, like, how do you, how do you get over that moment of doubt? You've started on one course, and I, 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 it's interesting to hear you say that actually. That, like, you know, you were having those conversations already, you were interested in Wada already, and and like those tracks were laid on some level. But, like, I can just imagine, especially if you felt like this was like, you know, a pretty important shot for you in your career, and you've gone and sold this kind of like super size me version of the film. Like, I can imagine at least that it would be pretty nerve wracking to feel the ground shifting under you. And I'm just kind of, uh, I'm, I'm interested in how you get through that.
3: Well, I mean, I, um, first and foremost is I didn't, um, as I was setting out on, on making the film, um, creatively and career wise, I didn't really have like a backup plan. So, so it wasn't like this was like a side project to me or this was something that I was, you know, kind of doing in between um, other work. This was what I was doing and this was, you know, I had essentially created what was a, a full-time job for myself in making this film. So so as the story um, just kept, you know, unfolding, I, it, it, you know, it was like, okay, well, this is... This is this is the journey that I'm on. I'm going to continue to follow it, and then I was very very fortunate um, that Impact Partners, um, who was uh, who came in as my financier after the first year of making the film, realized and understood uh, the story that we were in. But there was a long period of time also that none of us were really thinking so much about purely the the film. It was really that we were in a, a Real world crisis. Uh, right. Gregory's life was essentially uh, in my hands, and um, and there was a huge amount of trust there, and we were dealing with a, you know, a, a true, uh, real uh, <laughs> uh, unfolding um, situation. The stakes were high, and so during that period of time. The film became secondary, but I always made sure that there was a camera there. So it was like every day we were in this, (laughs) like, you know, uh, daily crisis management and how we were going to bring this story forward. But I made sure that there was always a camera there um, to essentially record what was going on.
1: How did the people around you, how did their feelings about what you were doing change as the stakes changed? Like, there's this moment, like 20 minutes into the movie, it's right when you find out that, uh, Gregory is being investigated by Wada, and you're talking to Ben Stone about it? Right.
2: I mean, you know, there might be someone else out there that's that, that might be a better decision or choice. You're
1: using this guy as your outlet for coach. I don't need to tell me I mean, what you're comfortable with. Well, you know, I mean, like, here's how I'm kind
3: of looking you at You know, him. you can find someone else. I guess you're calling doping doctors. I don't know what you would
1: label Gregory. I mean, is he a biochemist? I, I don't even know. Oh, it doesn't even matter. I don't like this shit. <laughs> it seems like people in your life weren't too into the original plan, weren't too into you hanging out with Gregory. And then once once the whole tenor changed, what did people around you think, not your producing partners, but like your friends?
3: You know, it's uh, uh, actually uh, most of what we were going through. Um, I kept pretty close to my vest and uh, among only those that were working on the film and, and the project because this was this was serious so it's not like at that point um you know I was I was talking to all these guys and telling them what was going on um you know
1: right. is it weird though to like you know go get dinner with somebody and just like shoot the shit while you're like uh try, trying to keep a man from
3: getting killed well I think I think the 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 the, the interesting thing is I it's through the you know, the process, obviously my parents, you know, I would I'd call up my parents and be like, you know, oh my God, you don't understand what's going on. This is really serious and you know, I think my dad, kind of always being a skeptic, was like, Oh yeah, 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 you know, and and, and they had actually met Gregory and and so nobody could kind of fathom what I knew and how kind of serious and and far reaching this was and essentially kind of um how big this scandal was and um so you know any anybody that I kind of shared with this um outside of my creative team, like my family or stuff would always like downplay this like I was essentially you know like- a conspiracy right. theorist or something so so that was uh that that was uh that that was interesting and then I think you know among athletes and and guys who are riding with cycling with, and there was only a handful knew that I was like essentially taking uh peds even though i was an amateur and even though i was doing this uh, purely from an investigative point of view they would like get into like this like ethical conundrum about it (laughs) and and i always thought that that was was very strange because if you have an ethical conundrum that uh that sports should be clean and you're an athlete and you're not taking anything which you know which which i believe in that um, then my process of wanting to show that the system was a fraud, um, I would have thought that other athletes would have been excited about. And yet they were looking at it that I was like a cheater. And I was consistently going, I'm not I'm not a cheater. I'm not going into competitions where I'm being paid money. I'm not a sponsored athlete. I'm a filmmaker and I'm investigating something. And I'm showing, hopefully, um, the fallacies of a system, which is actually going to help protect you and help you, if you're a clean athlete, uh, ensure that that competition is clean. And, um, and so I, I, I encountered that many times along the journey, and I always thought that that was, that was very strange, that, that these guys couldn't like, step out of their own shoes to understand what was the bigger process.
1: What do you think was threatening to them?
3: Well, I think I think what was threatening, um, and I've um, and I've kind of continued to uh, encounter this, and I'll share with you um, one story just from this past week through the film, and then in the last year, you know, I've gotten to know Lance Armstrong, so I went cycling with him last week, and that must have been pretty cool. Yeah, and it was and it was really cool, and so you know, love or hate Lance. You know, for me, it's like wow. I'm I'm cycling with you know the the guy who, you know, who, regardless of anything, he he won the Tour de France seven times. Yes. Uh, I mean, shooting, and,
1: and, shooting hoops with LeBron.
3: Yeah, and uh, and whether and, and to me, whether or not LeBron James hypothetically, you know, is taking something or not, you know, or, or you know if that doesn't if that didn't diminish um, the feat of winning seven Tour de France's knowing that everybody else was essentially doing the same thing. And if you go back historically, you know, it, it really is arguably a, a level playing field because there was nobody else to give those titles to, um, and there's still nobody else to give those titles to. So, how's, how's, uh,
1: how's Lance Armstrong doing these days?
3: Yeah, well, hang on. So anyway, so I post a photo of Lance and I on Instagram riding, and I get like a, a couple angry text messages from you know, from ex-pro cyclists that I had somehow, like, stabbed them in the back. And, and I'm thinking to myself, not only have I not stabbed you in the back, had the Lance story not happened, um, then Icarus and all these revelations would have never happened. I would have never started on that journey. Um, uh, I would have never met Gregory. I wouldn't have been able to bring what was a fraud, you know, on a level a million times bigger than Lance forward. And in so doing, that's helped protect, you know, clean athletes. That's helped, you know, hopefully make changes in the system and bring awareness globally to to a bigger problem. So um, it's always been interesting to me how um, how short sighted I've I've found many people um, in this journey rather than looking at the at the bigger perspective outside of themselves.
1: Well, he he also, I mean, Armstrong in particular, just. He's such like a trigger. He just represents so much to people. I think, um, you know, he's just like he's just a symbol in all of these ways, over and over and over again. In Icarus, we see him say, "I've I've tested positive every time." You know, look into the camera and say, "I never doped." Right. Say I'm clean. Yeah. And it, and I wonder whether you think that in those moments he knew he was lying or whether he had he he had found a lie to tell himself that was so powerful that he believed what he was saying
3: well i mean you would need to ask lance that because i i certainly wouldn't uh know that but but i believe that um you know, we get into in, in, in Icarus um, the whole theme of of Orwell and Doublethink and Nineteen Eighty Four, which is Gregory's um, favorite book and, and was kind of his roadmap for life. And I think that in many ways that probably um, you know mirrored Lance's journey and in, in, you know the idea of uh, the more and more you you tell a lie, that ultimately you start believing um, in its truth. Um, and, and that certainly was kind of the, the roadmap of, of Gregory and his journey and Winston Smith in 1984, which is this, you know, this double thing, which is, you know, continuing to repeat a lie until it becomes a truth. I can certainly understand theoretically where, where Lance was coming through all those years that, you know, once he was caught up in that and once he had become a champion and the sponsorships and also the belief that, um, everybody else was was doing the same thing or were doing the same thing. And I could see why the defense of that lie occurred, not not to justify it or not to uh, to validate it, but I think I could understand what that might be like to be caught into something like that because that certainly was Gregory's path as well.
1: It is about double think. I think that's uh that's a much finer point to put on my like clumsily phrased question. When did you? Uh, when did you decide to, to use 1984 as, as such a like kind of key device in the film? Did that come late or did that come early?
3: That came that came late, and um, and uh, I, I wish I could truly take credit for that, but I, I, I can't. Gregory traveled um, with you know with, with 1984, and at the time, um, you know I had I had multiple editors um, on the project. And, um, one of my lead editors by the name of Kevin Clauber looking through all the footage, um, had really uh, grasped on that Gregory was always quoting Orwell and it was always quoting, you know, out of 1984 and he had been doing it, you know, through the entire time that I met him. I mean, and, and, you know, like long before, uh, he had, he had fled, uh, to, to the U.S. And, um. I remember Kevin saying to me, you know, hey, Brian, have you read 1984? And uh, I go, yeah. I mean, in high school, he goes, you know, you should go back and look at this. And, and I went back and started looking at it. And, and there was, I think, kind of a, um, oh, my God, a light bulb moment among uh, myself and the creative team that essentially what was happening in our story mimicked, you know, 1984. And that Gregory, in a way, was, was Winston Smith. And that narratively, the construct mimicked the three stages of Winston S- Smith, uh, learning, understanding, acceptance. And and those stages um, of Winston Smith's journey was truly uh, mimicking Gregory's journey, and here Gregory uh, was the living embodiment of doublethink. So all those kind of revelations... Um, led us to think that this could be a narrative arc, uh, that this could be a construct that we could frame the story around. And uh, Literally uh, a a couple days before bringing Gregory into protective custody, dropping him off at the airport, which was in July of of 2016, um, we brought him into our editing offices and um, found a quiet room, brought in the sound guys, and recorded him reading uh, various passages, which we had highlighted in 1984, for you know a couple of hours, and then over the the next year, as we crafted the film, these passages we were able to to frame a story around and had his you know audio of re, of recording that as the narrator.
1: Can I ask you no, Can I ask you another process question? That's that's right in line with like that that evolution. Sure. We, when he started, at first he was like a character and an advisor in the film, right? And then he kind of becomes its subject and then he be, kind of becomes your friend and and then he becomes a, a victim and someone who's in danger. There's so many different roles as a filmmaker in that process, right? Like you're starting to wear all these different hats and as you were saying earlier, like at some point the film actually becomes of secondary importance, when you start realizing that, like, this guy's life is kind of in your hands, how do you figure out how to protect him? Like, what, what do you do? There's a moment where you reference that you talk to um, Ben Wisner, Snowden's lawyer. And I, I just, like, I wonder, like, uh, once you realize how high the stakes have gotten, like, literally in a practical sense, how you figure out how to protect someone like in that situation.
3: Well, I think that's uh, um, two two parts of that answer, which is first, um, the desire to protect him. and and you know there's there's a scene in Icarus where the WaDA report comes out. He's forced to resign from the lab. The lab's accreditation is pulled, and Putin is on television basically saying that, we deny this, none of this is true, but if any of this happened, it'll be the individual that is held responsible and punishment is absolute. And here's Gregory in Moscow uh, with two FSB agents essentially living in his home, quote unquote, guarding him. Um, and, that, uh, and that statement by Putin and what was going on um, was essentially his death sentence um, and they were gonna throw him under the bus. And so, as I as I understood that very quickly, the idea that I wasn't going to help him to me never really crossed my mind because here he had been my advisor uh, and helping me without literally a, a a dime of money. There was never any financial um, consideration. Um, he was he had just been helping me and advising me and filming with me as as a friend. Um, you know, I mean, it was it was truly. As simple as that.
1: Why do you think he did it? Like, why did he start doing it with you?
3: You know, I've asked him that many times, and and I think that um, I think that 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 he liked, and you know, what he said to me is that he liked that I was devious. He liked that I was, <laughs> um, you know, and in his mind, I was an amateur athlete. So. You know, I wasn't a professional, so hey, there was you know this this gray area loophole that you could uh, theoretically help me. You know, at least in his mind, which of course um, that was certainly a conundrum that we had in in before the film took the turn, which was I was like, how are we going to ever put this out? Gregory will lose his job. He'll be you know exiled. He'll be you know because of because everything that he's helping with, he he shouldn't have been doing to begin with. But um, you know, we had this trust, and I think that he in his mind also um you know uh, maybe there is um you know a a manifestation of 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 what was happening and i think and i think he probably realized and i know that he realized that you know the noose was kind of tightening around him this investigation was was unfolding there had been this german documentary and on top of that um he was fed up with uh with his job. He was fed up with the ministry. He was fed Mm -hmm. up that, you know, that, that, you know, that he was no longer a scientist. He was essentially a guy who was, whose job was dumping out, um, you know, dirty urine for clean urine. And, um, I think all those elements probably led him to, um, to help me that it, that it seemed like a new adventure. Um, but it was ultimately, you know, his, um, help and, and, and trust that we established, that made it very easy for me to get him that ticket, to get him here and protect him because he had been such you know, an extraordinary friend to me. The idea that I wasn't going to be a friend to him didn't really cross my mind. Yeah,
1: it's funny thinking about... I, I watched the movie twice before you and I talked, and watching his introduction again, knowing like where the story's going to go, you know? You, you really read it differently, like the first time I experienced it, he kind of seems like someone who's like um he's kind of just did it for like the ego boost, you know right. like he's good yeah. at it and he likes talking about it and he wants he wants he wants it to get seen and he seems kind of like oddly like uh, nonchalant about it and um and then the second time around knowing where it was gonna go, there's this other element to it like maybe part of why he was so game to talk to you was because he th- was trying to figure out how he was going to get out maybe it was just one path you know one possibility maybe there's like a bunch of hands but maybe you represented some 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 chance that could work you know
3: uh i you know look i, I it, it's um there you know to uh, not wax philosophical or spiritual but Uh, uh, there's so many things that kind of happen in the journey of life that, that you might look at that could be random or by chance, but ultimately, um, have, have a, have a bigger purpose. And so the, just the idea that, that, uh, that I come into Gregory's life and Gregory comes into my life at that perfect timing, um, that, you know, that, that, that he helps me, um, in my journey. And then I, you know, and then I help him in his journey. Um, you know, all these kind of just different, uh, things that, that, that transpired, uh, really transpired, um, you know, almost feels like, like fate. I mean, that we were meant to come into each other's lives to, to help each other. It certainly is, um, kind of a crazy, uh, story when you look at how it all came together and, uh, it it happens so Yeah. Uh, and i don't and i don't think and i don't think gregory um knows exactly you know why or how he did everything other than other than he did he trusted me i trusted him and uh ultimately i protected him and my team protected him and he had protected me
1: at any point as these roles were shifting and you were going from like director subject, like, advisor, athlete to friends and then protector, like, at any, at any point did he become a, a collaborator in the filmmaking? Like, I'm thinking about, like, the big interview where he, it walks you through swapping urine and admits to everything. And maybe we could just take a second and listen to that really quickly. This was named Operation Sochi Resultato. In Russian, "resultat" result means to achieve positive results.
3: So you need clean urine? I need a clean urine for each candidate. So every single Russian athlete under the state-sponsored doping, you had clean samples of their urine being held? Yes. So that if an athlete, anybody needed to be swapped, you Correct. could swap them? Yes. But
1: in Sochi, so like when you sat down for that big interview had you guys talked about oh, yeah. it? was it planned? Oh, yeah.
3: I mean there had, there, had, you know we I shot actually multiple um interviews uh, that were you know various um, kind of versions of um, um, you know of 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 the tell all because there was so much to tell and um, and before and before we we sat down and, and did that interview um you know we had had multiple discussions, and I'd actually um shot um you know just uh, stuff not not all lit and and ready for that in various kind of iterations of it and um and certainly as you know as we got into the editing event of that, of that story, we probably even pulled audio from from a couple different interviews but the un- unraveling of that really was over a couple months time of once he had got to Los Angeles and I think Gregory's decision to become a whistleblower and his desire to to expose this truth and as that desire in him grew um, you know are kind of continuing to shoot interviews with him uh, as he became more and more open um, about what had happened and what he had been involved in that, continued kind of our our journey of of interviewing and obviously um the biggest revelation or fraud being um what he had been involved with in sochi and um and that he was essentially the the architect of that plan do
1: you think it
3: in this way that we've talked
1: about where like the stakes were kind of building on themselves and the ground was shifting and all of a sudden as a viewer at least you realize like Oh, this is this is a much bigger deal than I I thought even a few minutes ago in the film. Do you think that he was aware of the stakes the whole time?
3: Absolutely, and the and the funny thing, or not the funny thing, but the reality is that Gregory kept telling me the stakes consistently, and and I knew what the stakes were, but you know he would be like you know this is a nuclear bomb, this is a big bomb, this is a huge bomb, this is going to change <laughs> change the world, this is the biggest fraud in, in history, this is the demise of the Olympics, this is uh, going to destroy Wada, this is going to destroy Russia, this is like, and so Gregory was always kind of reminding me of of how big this was, you know, and I knew that, but, you know, there's, there's also kind of the the idea of you know hey somebody telling you something so you know if I'm saying Max you're never gonna believe this this is really big you know and then <laughs> right. and then and then you know kind of the understanding of whoa this is really big and then of course the media and news and investigation and New York Times and everything going yeah this is really big <laughs> and and then all of it being proven true so. I I, I think Gregory from from day one knew, you know, kind of how big this was and how big of a fraud and 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 held those cards to his chest a little bit initially. And then um, as our trust built and his desire uh, to become a whistleblower and expose this fraud grew, you know, he knew that there were you know, essentially many chapters to play. And, right. and 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 those chapters have continued to, you know, to unfold. I mean, he was he was just recently coming very public about various players on Russia's World Cup soccer team that he had been swapping urine for. You know, there's still pieces of his story that just keep unfolding.
1: It's so um that's <laughs> funny to hear you say that. There's something about like part of what makes it hard to know where the stakes are in the film is that all of the, like, Olympic and WADA officials, basically every single one of them is such, like, um, a, like, careful older white man with gray hair and they all talk in, like, such monotones, you know, that it's sort of hard to know how important or eventful or impactful what they're saying are. Like, the whole culture of it is so, like, neutral and monotone and, and Gregory's so not that. He's so like animated and all over the place. And that scene when he sees the time stories is really, I think, what I was asking about because that seems like one moment where he, it sort of hits him the magnitude of, of what he's doing. Um, it was striking to me that his first reaction was just like, that story's so good. You know, like, this is so good. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and honestly, Brian, what it, what it made me think about was w- what his reaction to your film would be do you know if he's seen it
3: yeah no he's he's seen it um I know that um his lawyer showed it to him so I, I don't think he's ever got to experience it uh, in a theater on the big screen I know he hasn't um but um I know that he was uh, incredibly moved by it and um I'm really taken by it and um I think he was kind of overwhelmed emotionally by how it came together and how, you know, we, we portrayed him in the film and et cetera.
1: I assume that, um, you don't know where he is and you haven't talked to him. And even if you did know, and you had, you couldn't tell me, but, um, imagine that he's, you know, somewhere wherever you get put when you're in witness protection. And, uh, he just happens to be a listener to this podcast and subscribing on his iPhone and listening. Is there, uh, is there something you'd want to say to him after all this?
3: I mean, I think I would say to him, you know, I don't know if I can curse, but you know, you can, I think I would just say, Holy fuck, man. (laughs) Look, look, look what you did, you know? Um, no, I mean, I, uh, I am constantly concerned for his um, emotional and mental well-being. And, uh, you know, being a whistleblower is uh, in many ways a very selfless act because if you look at kind of the history of many whistleblowers, um, is they pay, um, you know, a, a huge cost. And when you look at Gregory's journey um, outside of the... Notoriety, recognition, um, whatever you might want to call it, pseudo celebrity. Behind that, there's there's a very heavy price, which is this guy is going to have a a target on on his back for the rest of his life. Uh, certainly, we we've seen this, you know, in the case of Skirpal or Alexander Litvinenko or or any number of Russians that we've you know that we've read about that have that have met um, untimely demises. Um, and he is uh, isolated from his family. He is isolated from ever returning to that country. And my understanding is that, you know, he m- lives um, most of his days kind of in solitude, um, hmm. because you know he can't he can't be roaming around in public. Um, apparently, they put him in a bulletproof vest when he goes out, and and um, you know his lawyer and FBI and whatever have continued to facilitate him being able to do interviews and press to keep the story forward um, but um, it's a, it's a you know it's it's a big it's a big price to uh, yeah uh, to pay do you miss the guy yeah of course um, and uh, you know i i i worry more or think about more what is 2 years 3 years down the line look for him and um, and i think that that's that, that that's a heavy toll
1: I got, I got one more question, Brian, and then I'll let you go. Thinking down the line for him is one thing. Um, thinking down the line for you is another. And I believe in that stuff, too, like things happening for, for a reason. And um, it does seem like from a strictly like narrative perspective, from a filmmaking perspective, something miraculous happened to you. You know, I mean, uh, you just the story of a lifetime just kind of unfolded in front of you and took you on this crazy path and you know you got that Oscar that you sleep with every night
3: and not anymore that was only the first couple of weeks oh right 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 <laughs> my bad my
1: bad well here's the thing i here's the thing i was i was wondering is like um what do you do now man like you 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 can't recreate that right and i i know some people who who have had um, that kind of public success and I know that your phone starts ringing and your email is crazy and all these offers pour in but how do you like how do you follow up something so incredible and so impossible to
3: engineer um, that's a that's a good question and I think that um, you know you, you I, I've experienced this in in a much smaller, capacity before where um, I I did this play called Jutopia, you know, is a big success. And in the success of that, which kind of went, went on for years, I found myself kind of trapped by that success. I I liken it to kind of being uh, Ross, David Schwimmer on Friends or Jason Alexander on Seinfeld where, you know, you're always going to be that person um, no matter, you know, how many times you might try to reinvent yourself and that can kind of burden you because it's this feeling of, of you know, of imminent failure. And I think with Icarus, having went through that once with um, with Utopia, I know that, um, I'm not going to replicate that success. Um, I am not going to uh, uh, very unlikely find a story like this again. Um, and so you have to kind of understand that creatively and just try to kind of push forward with what with what inspires you. So, you know, for me, like, the, the follow-up is um, to produce doc projects that I'm passionate about and... Um, I've got a scripted feature that um, that I'm working to get going, which is a a true story. And um, so figuring out kind of how to how to navigate that, um, knowing that whatever I do is not going to be Icarus, but hopefully um, you know it'll it'll be its own thing. And you know and you just move forward creatively and and uh, and try not to worry too much about the overall outcome, other than to do your best.
1: Hey, thank you, man. Thank you for doing this.
3: Uh, Thanks, Max. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. This show also had help from Barry Finkel. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Google Play, and Stitcher Premium. And thanks very much to Brian Fogel. If you have not seen Icarus, it is streaming right now on Netflix, along with a bunch of other great documentaries. Go check it out. We'll see you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running.